Welcome to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast. Each week we talk about heart rate variability and how it can be used to improve your overall health and wellness. Please consider the information in this podcast for your informational use and not medical advice. Please see your medical provider to apply any of the strategies outlined in this episode. Heart Rate Variability Podcast is a production of Optimal LLC and Optimal HRV. Check us out at OptimalHRV.com. Please enjoy the show. Welcome, friends, to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast. I'm really excited just to do a quick introduction um, of a crossover episode we're doing with the Northeast Region uh, Biofeedback Society's Healthy Brain, Happy Body Podcast. Uh, hosted by my uh, good friend and friend of the show, uh, Saul Rosenthal. Uh, he recently interviewed Dr. Ina Hazan, obvious friend of the show, also past guest and friends of the show, Dr. Fred Schaefer, Dr. Donald Moss, about the evidence-based practice in biofeedback and neurofeedback fourth edition, which just came out through the AAPB. Um, I was really excited to, uh, uh, and following uh, the release of this work, I can't recommend it more. I was uh, going to try to get Kazan and Schaefer and Moss to come on the Heart Rate Variability Podcast, and then I heard this episode by Saul, and I'm just like, hey, here is four geniuses talking about the exact topic that I wanted to, reached out uh, to the Northeast region, ask uh, them and Saul permission to do a crossover episode and they kindly agreed. So if you're watching on YouTube, uh, it's gonna go dark here. We will just have the audio, so I apologize for that. Uh, but you know, hey, you've got four geniuses on one episode. Who needs visuals? So I'm excited to share this all with you. Again, I wanna thank the Northeast Regional Biofeedback Society for allowing us to publish this. And I'm excited to, to share the great work that they do with our audience as well. So enjoy and I'll see you next week. Welcome to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a podcast from the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal. In this podcast, we explore the ever-fascinating connections between brain, body, health, and happiness. This episode is a little different than our usual. Our guests today are the editors of an upcoming edition of one of the more important books about biofeedback and neurofeedback. In the early 2000s, the Association for Applied Psychophysiology and Biofeedback and the International Society for Neuroregulation and Research developed strict guidelines for testing the efficacy of biofeedback and neurofeedback. Since then, a series of reviews have been published, providing practice guidelines for a host of health issues. This summer, we'll see the publication of the fourth edition of Evidence-Based Practice in Biofeedback and Neurofeedback. We thought it would be interesting to bring the editors together to talk a bit about the book, what it tells us about the state of biofeedback and neurofeedback practice, and why you should care, whether you are a practitioner or a consumer. As a disclosure, I'm also an editor on this edition. Today, it's a bit crowded in the virtual recording booth. We have four of the five editors of the soon-to-be-out fourth edition of Evidence-Based Practice. And joining me are Don Moss, Fred Schaefer, and our fearless leader and taskmaster, Ina Kazan. Unfortunately, Randy Lyle couldn't join us today, uh, coordinating five busy people, uh, required skills that were a little bit beyond me. But that said, we're fortunate to have some of the real dignitaries of applied psychophysiology 
to talk with about the most complete set of guidelines for what biofeedback and neurofeedback can really do. So thank you all so much for joining us together today and coming, coming all of you coming together today. Our listening audience includes practitioners as well as people who are interested in biofeedback. And for those who don't know, what exactly is the evidence-based practice book? It is a collection of chapters uh, that lets the reader know just how much evidence we have on the efficacy of biofeedback and neurofeedback for a specific condition or disorder. Don, I know you, you've been involved since the very beginning, and, and Fred, you joined, I think, in the third edition. But I wonder if one of you or both could, could tell us a little bit about the history of this effort. I can take this back over two decades. Um, in 2001, I was the president of AAPB, and Jay Gunkelman was the president of ISNR, the Neurofeedback Organization. And we were uh, close colleagues and friends. And we both saw a need for some kind of standard that would be uniform for judging um, approaches to biofeedback and neurofeedback for a variety of common disorders. Um, we appointed a, a task force led by Theodore Levesque um, and populated by some, some excellent researchers. And they established efficacy standards that were then endorsed by both AAPB and ISNR, and we began at that time promoting white papers, research, systematic reviews of application areas. And this was good, but it was too slow. So in 2004, uh, Carolyn Yuha and Chris Gilbert agreed to summarize very briefly the efficacy of a number of standard disorders, and that was the first edition of evidence-based practice in biofeedback and neurofeedback. We're now publishing the fourth edition with a, a new set of editors and, and a much enlarged um, stable of authors covering more than 40 different disorders. So this has been the product of a lot of hard work by organizations, editors, authors over a two decade period, producing a book that summarizes where we are in evidence-based practice. And Don, you mentioned uh, efficacy standards. Um, I wonder if, if maybe Fred, you can tell us a little bit about what that means and why we should, why it's important. When a field uh, wants, seeks credibility, particularly when we're talking about uh, third-party payers, uh, but also uh, from uh, colleagues uh, who might make referrals uh, for biofeedback and neurofeedback services. And also to the patients or clients who may receive the referrals, we need to conservatively convey the strength of the evidence for a specific application. Now, now for some of us, at least for half of us in, in this podcast, this is the first time we've been involved with this project. So, you know, you're the, you're the lead editor of this edition. I'm wondering can, if you talk about how you got involved in, in sort of how you view the project. Certainly. So I, um, I was very honored to be invited to join in as a uh, as one of the editors on the uh, on this edition. Um, uh, and uh, 
just so happened uh, that I ended up being the lead editor. I'm not entirely sure how that uh, decision process happened, <laughs> but uh, you know, Fred and Don invited me to uh, be a part of the uh, project, continuing the work that uh, um, they have been doing. Um, and it's been just an incredible pleasure and honor to you know, work with uh, all of you and uh, put together this incredible collection of evidence. I've been sort of in awe as to just how much evidence we've amassed for eff efficacy of biofeedback and neurofeedback. You know, I feel like editing this edition has been a, quite a learning uh, project for me, too, um, and uh, it, it, quite inspiring. Inspiring, obviously, also a lot of... Um a lot of hard work uh, as somebody who is sort of the lead of four other busy, busy people. I mean, do you have any strategies that you used or anything you could maybe pass on to editors in, in either other publications or maybe the fifth, sixth or seventh edition of this one? Uh, well, I got to say um, the current editors have just made it super easy, uh, probably, you know, more so than it should have been. Um, uh, one thing, I think one difficulty we encountered that I think would be really helpful for us to keep in mind for the next edition uh, is how to contact authors of chapters from the previous edition. There were quite a few authors that we could not track down because they were invited by editors who are no longer involved. Uh, so that was probably the biggest, the biggest challenge. and. Uh, Hopefully, something that we can avoid uh, in the future is to have good contact information for for everybody, so that we can bug people again to replicate their chapters or add new ones. Wise words for anybody trying to project that goes on in time. It, 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 Don, you you talked about the the very first edition, sort of the the, the history of this project a little bit, and in, I'm curious about for for you who sort of seen this whole history, this process, what what sticks out in your mind? Uh, you, you'd already mentioned that we're, we're now covering over 40 uh, conditions, but are there other issues or other things that stick out with this volume when you think about it compared to the earlier three? Um, I've been very encouraged at doing some of the chapters myself for the fourth edition, but also reading those uh, written by my colleagues, editing them. Um, what encourages me is the quality of research in the field of both biofeedback and neurofeedback has increased tremendously, as has the volume of research. Um, the way the ed efficacy standards were developed, something might rate low in efficacy. It doesn't mean that that intervention is not helpful. It means there's not yet very good research on it. There may be a few case studies, clinical reports, but not controlled studies. Um, and today, we now have a number of biofeedback and neurofeedback applications that qualify at the very highest uh, efficacy rating. Um, if I compare the third edition uh, from 2016 to the fourth edition, the one we're bringing out now, there was only one area, one disorder, attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder that qualified for the highest rating back in 2016. And now, for example, panic disorder reaches a five, heart rate variability interventions for asthma reaches a five level, um, biofeedback for depression reaches a five level, uh, glycemic control for diabetes reaches the fifth level, and there are others. So 
first of all, the quality of research has gotten better and there's a lot more research. So we're able to, to rate um, we're able to rate applications better at a higher level than we could originally. Um, and I think the quality of treatment in the field has also uh, improved as we have new modalities and new protocols for applying those modalities. So that's my biggest takeaway from this fourth edition. And I'm already looking forward to doing research for the fifth edition. Actually, that, that brings up um, or reminds me of one of the discussions we had or part of the discussion. I think the, the third edition came out in 2014. 2016. 2016, sorry. So that's, you know, seven, eight years. But we've already started to think a little bit even about the next edition. I, I'm, I'm curious, and this, this I open to anybody. What do you think? I mean, obviously, in some ways, it'd be great to have this as a rolling, continuous live document, which we, we can't. But what do you think is a reasonable amount of time if, if such exists between editions? Is there, is there even any way to, to think about it? We've not had that luxury. Uh, I think uh, just off the top of my head, uh, four years. That's exactly yeah. what I was thinking. Uh, four, years, uh, four years gives us uh, the opportunity to uh, give the uh, evidence base a shelf life that makes it worth uh, publishing a print edition. Uh, at the same time, during the uh, revision can begin at the start of the first of the four years. Uh, and while the editors have not uh, formally uh, adopted uh, the strategy, uh, Don has, has generously offered uh, to have a uh, graduate student uh, continue to review uh, the literature, particularly for uh, meta-analyses, systematic reviews, uh, new randomized controlled trials to see what has changed uh, in our 40 plus uh, disorders or applications. Uh, and then only they would need to be revised. And so instead of revising everything, which is essentially what we did for the fourth edition, uh, we might revise 25%. Yeah, I, um, I agree with what Fred was saying. It, it seems to me that if we highlight new randomized controlled trials, new meta-analyses, um, and then novel studies that may not be randomly controlled but represent a new approach to a, a treatment, um, we will have something to say in four years. I hope we also can develop a faster, um, a faster process for getting the chapters to the public because I know my chapters are lar are almost two years old. So I'm already two years behind looking at current research. And there have been some very interesting studies, for example, in anxiety. Andre Chung uh, did a study with several colleagues in which there was no face-to-face -face contact with her research participants. Everything was done through smartphone administration of uh, pre preliminary questionnaires and post questionnaires treatment was delivered remotely and yet they got excellent improvement in anxiety so things like this are encouraging and I'd like to see them come out in the in the fifth edition along with the good solid evidence of well-designed studies what you're talking about it really makes me think about 
that tension between what we would call um, uh, you know high level studies, usually um, RCT uh, randomized control trials, and novel approaches, and trying to keep that tension. It's a dynamic tension in, in trying to figure out, well, where do we go with a particular client who walks through our doors? I was sort of thinking about this as I was working on the volume as well, sort of reviewing chapters. But because certainly the people who walk through my door, and I'm sure this is true with all of you, they, they haven't read the evidence-based books. They, you know, or, or they, they, they don't know what their, their, their issues don't know how they're supposed to be responding to evidence-based treatment. And, and frequently when they come to see me, they've already been through what would be considered traditional or typical treatment. So on the one hand, I think we often need to engage in novel and uh, maybe idiosyncratic treatment for our patients who walk in the door. So I think there's that piece of it. On the other side of it, I think it's safe to say that biofeedback and neurofeedback can pull for people who care less about evidence-based approaches than the four of us might. And, and so, you know, you see biofeedback and neurofeedback often credited for, you know, quote, curing or fixing all sorts of things in health and performance where there really isn't the evidence. So I'm really curious about, mm-hmm. um, you know, for those of us who have been involved in this, really steeped in this, what does the evidence tell us based on a, a pretty sophisticated criteria, how to think about that when we're working with clients who don't always follow the evidence, that is the evidence-based treatment don't always work for them without going too far to the other side where we're just sort of doing whatever kind of comes to mind in the moment. I think, um, you know, it, it's a fine, it's a fine balance, right? Um, and it's important to keep the client in the loop while they may not be following the literature or may not be, uh, you know, likely will not be as interested in it as, you know, as we are, that's, you know, that's how it should be, you know, we need to be doing our work and our research. Um, I think it's important to keep the client in the loop as to our decision-making process as we're figuring out, you know, which biofeedback approach is uh, uh, going to make the most sense or whether biofeedback makes sense at all. Uh, Letting the client know about the research that does exist and, you know, if it's overwhelmingly positive, well, you know, that makes things easy. Um, If it's, if there are some uh, great studies, but maybe we're at a level, you know, two or three, uh, because we don't quite have enough, just giving a rationale uh, to clients and letting them know uh, why we think biofeedback may be worth a try, and at the same time, letting them know the research is not quite there so that they can be fully informed participant um, in, the, in the decision. I agree with that. Over the years, um, by the time patients reached me, they'd often tried a number of the so-called best practice approaches to their disorder. Um, whether it's anxiety, irritable bowel, other things. Um, I remember as heart rate variability was introduced in the field, I started utilizing it right away, even before I fully understood uh, the possibilities of that intervention. And I had to tell my patients, um, this is not the best practice 
uh, intervention nationwide, but you've already had cognitive therapy. You've had exposure therapy. I've had a number of patients respond very well to this, and I can give you the one case study that's been published using this for your disorder. Um, and most of my patients wanted to try something new because they were burned out on the well-established standard treatments. Um, but I, I did use, when something seemed experimental, I used a written consent form. And um, when I offer people a new treatment, um, I may not sign a new form each time, but I certainly introduce how does this intervention stand in the field today um, and why am I offering it to you? And my patients have really been excited to try something and they often benefited from relatively new treatments. I think that's a really good point that our clients often come to us after having tried everything. Right. So if we only offer them what what's sort of a, sh a sure thing, they may not get to where they need to be. Uh, and that's how new treatments get developed. I think, you know, as long as the client is familiar with our thinking process and the good news is by feedback, you know, is rarely harmful. Um, so, if, you know, the worst that can happen is it doesn't work. The clinician, uh, after receiving written informed consent for providing uh, a new treatment, uh, can uh, gather data uh, and uh, see whether, in fact, objectively, uh, as well as subjectively, uh, the patient has improved. One of the brilliant things about biofeedback and neurofeedback is these are data-based interventions. Uh, you have uh, objective and subjective data uh, that can result uh, in, in a really good overview of how the patient is, is, is improving. Uh, and the cool thing about it from the patient's standpoint is you can show them their gains uh, on the screen. Uh, and this increases the credibility of the treatment. And, and I think as a practitioner, seeing that data on the screen has always been a really powerful tool actually for me as well as the client because I like to be convinced and I, I, I see the uh, the evidence-based practice book as as another part of that you know obviously more for for me than the patients directly but I'm curious if if you each of you would maybe tell us a little bit about tell us why is this volume important? What, what, why do we keep putting it out there? And why should we continue to put it out there? Well, I can say for many years, I have copied pages out of the evidence-based practice book and given them to patients, to their referring physicians and, and referring nurses and others who have been referring the patients to show them that, yes, there is a, 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 a book published in the field which summarizes the current research and this is what it says about this disorder. And that's encouraging to people. Now, if people are a little bit higher level in their own reading ability and understanding, I may also give them a research paper on the disorder. Um, but the evidence-based book is written so that any, any referring party can usually understand the language and the conclusions, and they're encouraging. Yeah, I think you... Um it, to echo what uh, Fred uh, said initially, uh, this is a uh, great calling card as far as credibility uh, goes for biofeedback and neurofeedback. Um, it's an uh, 
easy uh, reference, you know, because people ask, well, I'm not very familiar with biofeedback. I've heard about it, uh, but you know, does it really work? Uh, this is an excellent way to uh, show um, other practitioners, you know, medical providers, potential clients, uh, or organizations that are considering uh, implementing biofeedback uh, in their uh, in the, in their clinics or among their among their clients, or getting their clinicians trained in biofeedback. You know, so often people are reaching out. You know, we have clients with depression, chronic pain, uh, you know, trauma. Uh, is biofeedback going to help them? And I need justification uh, because you know the people who are paying for this uh, need a reason uh, to pay for it. So this book is an excellent way to uh, concisely uh, and very accurately show people exactly uh, what they're getting themselves into. I think as a provider one of the values that I see in the in the in the book is I didn't know that biofeedback and neurofeedback had evidence for as many different issues as it has and so it's it's helped me think about and often use uh, applied psychophysiology in ways that I might not have without the volume and so that's been really helpful helpful to me uh, and 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 a, a real value that I see in in the in the book. I think it is always valuable for APB and ISNR members to see external validation of the good work that they're doing. Uh, that's the same uh, reason that a fraction of the members of both organizations pursue. Uh, BCIA certification as validation uh, of their expertise. Uh, so I see this as validation of the field. Uh, and I believe that our ratings are conservative. Uh, we reach consensus whenever uh, we either raise or lower an efficacy rating uh, compared to the previous edition. Uh, so there has to be complete agreement from all of the others before uh, we notch it up or down. I think that's another really important part of having uh, multiple um, editors uh, is to get our, you know, lots of lots of opinions and to make sure that everybody's in agreement when we are moving things one way or the other. I can talk about another value of this book, and it's it's something that I experienced in doing the research on the chapters I I, I uh, authored. But biofeedback practitioners, like other human beings, tend to focus on what they're doing. And we can lose the perspective of the broader field. You know, for example, is biofeedback or neurofeedback better or is either one the treatment of choice for anxiety? Well, the research shows that both are excellent. Both are effective for, especially for panic disorder, for phobias, uh, for generalized anxiety disorder. Um, and yet one person may not respond well to neurofeedback. And, and it's good to know that, neuro, that biofeedback, especially heart rate variability, which is relatively easy to, to learn and deliver, um, also has excellent comparable results. Um, when I reviewed the, chap, the uh, research out on uh, cerebral palsy and stroke, I, I knew that a great deal of the early research was EMG only. And it started simply with relaxation training, and then it became much more precise, activating uh, motor nerves that, motor pathways and motor nerves that 
um, had atrophied or had lost um, effectiveness. Um, but then there was there's a variety of other things: balance training with feedback, gait training with feedback. When does your heel strike in the course of the gait? Um, and all of these things are done. They they qualify as biofeedback because uh, the individual is getting feedback on the screen and modifying their gait or modifying their balance. Well, I wouldn't have known about all of those different approaches to stroke, uh, cerebral palsy, rehabilitation. Um, so I think this book really covers the landscape quite well um, and can remind us that there are other pathways to follow if our patients are not responding to what we're doing. Or we may want to refer to another specialized practitioner who can deliver can deliver a form of biofeedback or neurofeedback that we can't deliver. Uh, and w what a good point just to have this, you know, reference available to us, right? I think we've talked about, you know, how this is uh, valuable to um, everyone else. But, you know, just, you know, I, ha you know, I have this book nearby, you know, in the bookshelf behind me or right on my desk um, at all times. You know, oftentimes clients come in like, well, you know, I... Uh, I'm interested in skin conductance uh, biofeedback. Like that's that's actually happened recently. Um, and you know, can I use it for you know this thing I'm struggling with? Like, well, you know, let me see if there is any research. And rather than you know trying to claw my way through PubMed, um, I have an easy uh, reference guide uh, to let them know. Well, this is the evidence we have, and this is what I think about it. And you know, let's talk about how to proceed. Yeah, I have a very similar experience. I keep mine. Well, well within range, uh, and and really go to it probably more than any other volume um, that that I'm using. It occurred to me as you were talking an, another important aspect of this, and this this is not perhaps about the whole field, but I think it's about us as professionals, and it, it reflects my experience, but hopefully yours as well. It's just that. Contributing to the field through a project like this, I think is really important as professionals. I think part of our our job is to build the profession and to, to keep it expanding and growing and pushing its boundaries. So I think that that's that for, for me, that's a really important part of my professional life. And just speaking personally, it was a lot of fun. Um, it was a lot of work. But I learned so much, even about the things that I theoretically know already. Um, just digging into that research really led me to think, oh, I probably should be trying this approach, not that approach. Uh, and of course, working with 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 you all as colleagues is always is always a joy. Uh, so there's lots of lots of important aspects of this uh, of the evidence based book. And both, I guess, from the molecular for us as individuals, all the way up to the molar to not just our field, but the healthcare and performance and maybe not go further than that. But I think I think it has a lot of lot, lot of layers to it, a lot of levels. So so as we wrap up, I like to end these with one thing of questions. And unfortunately, we may, may have lost Fred, so he may not be able to answer, which may be a relief to him. Um, but I'll, I'll start with you, Ina, and I'll ask you both the same questions, but you know, if you could answer first, perhaps. What's the one thing you want our audience to take away from our discussion today? 
I hope that uh, the audience would take away the need to, you know, run to the AAPB website and order their book. <laughs> that's, 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 that's first. Uh, but also just the great versatility uh, in having this volume um, handy from your own clinical work to, you know, if you're designing a research study to have a quick reference guide, uh, you know, in, um, having some of that literature review already done for you, you'll still have to dig through some of the more recent uh, literature, but at least uh, uh, there is a huge chunk of literature already summarized um, for you. And if you're teaching, uh, if you are uh, training other practitioners, you know, having an easy reference guide uh, right uh, there at your fingertips, uh, I hope you find it really helpful. And how about you, Don? What, what is one thing you would like the audience to take away from our discussion? It occurs to me as I think about the book, um, I believe in lifelong learning. And I think for the biofeedback and neurofeedback practitioner, that means reading evidence-based practice when the new edition comes out, going to the annual meeting, going, reading the journal as it comes out, reading the magazine, biofeedback magazine as it comes out. This process never stops. The innovation in our field is remarkable. When you think about the fact that the word biofeedback was only chosen to designate our field in 1969, um, less than 60 years ago, and yet so much has happened, uh, the technological revolutions that have made possible the kinds of interventions we do today, um, real-time analysis of brain activity so that we can actually train people with Z-score training toward normal processes in a thousand other brains. Um, It's just remarkable. The heart rate variability training that we can do now goes far beyond what we could do 15 years ago. So as a practitioner, as a writer, as an educator, I don't want to to miss out on this next generation, which might happen in six months. And this book is just part of that process of continuing to learn. Uh, and so, Don, I'm going to ask you to answer this question first. When you when you start to think about, which I think we already have, the next edition, what is one new or expanded issue that you hope the fifth edition will include? It's a good question. Um, well, first of all, I want to include the disorders we've included here. But I suspect that if we look carefully, there are other applications that we should expand and include uh, because I know my colleagues keep innovating and um, I would like to reflect that in the fifth edition. Um, I I can see that areas that I was not real um, optimistic about have upgraded their efficacy rating. Uh, For example, cerebral palsy and stroke have both gone up to the um, efficacious level. That's level four, the second highest level. We have one brand new area. um, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of it. It's chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy, which was uh, reviewed by Sarah Prinsloo, and that jumped up to the four level on its very first appearance in the book. So here's something that we hadn't even been recognizing as a disorder necessarily for very long, and already we're discovering that neurofeedback can make a big difference. Um, I'd like to see some of the long COVID applications included in the next book, uh, because it's a problem in our in our world, I won't say in our country, but it's a global problem. People are left with 
um, the syndrome of long COVID, much of which is neurological, and we can modify neural processes. So that that should have a place in the fifth edition. And Ina, how about you? Um, in addition to what Don already said, I think I'd like to see a little bit more of a empirical distinction in biofeedback for children uh, versus adults. Uh, we have some, you know, we have you know pediatric headache, pediatric chronic pain versus adult pain and, and adult uh, uh, headache um, and you know incontinence. So we already have some distinctions there, but I believe we need to have a little bit more research uh, evidence for each uh, you know of the conditions or as many of them uh, as possible because you know kids are not little adults um, and there is there is a difference uh, and that question often comes up well I know this works for adults will it work for kids and sometimes my answer is like well try it and see uh, but I'd like to be able to point them to some research studies uh, one way or the other. Well in parallel with that Ina I also really wish for more research that does focus children um, that's true across the mind-body uh, continuum, hypnosis, imagery, biofeedback. Uh, we've got a lot more studies. Well, we have a lot of studies on white males, white males and female adults. We don't have a lot on uh, minority populations. We don't have a lot on children. I think that's true across all of healthcare. Yeah, that's true. Well, thank you for joining, uh, joining us here on healthy brain, happy body. And I'm looking forward to this volume coming out. And I would just uh, echo what, what I think everyone has said is go to AAPB and purchase it. I'll include a link to aapb.org uh, to their store. And uh, it's going to be well worth purchasing and I think necessary for good practice, for best practice. Thank you so much, Saul, for uh, creating this podcast and hosting us. Thank you, Saul. This is a great venue to talk about the book. You've been listening to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a production of the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. Go to nrbs.org to find out more about the organization, including our trainings, monthly webinars, and yearly conference. Our guests today were all but one of the editors of the upcoming edition of Evidence-Based Practice in Biofeedback and Neurofeedback. You can purchase the book at aapb.org or by following the link in the show notes. You can also subscribe to this podcast following the subscribe here link or wherever you get your podcasts. We really want to hear from you. Be part of the ongoing conversation by contacting us with your thoughts, ideas, and questions at healthybrain at nrbs.org. Leave us reviews as well. It really helps podcasts like this one reach more listeners. Healthy Brain, Happy Body is produced and edited by me. The theme music is Catch It by Coma Media. Be sure to join us in our next episode as we continue to explore the keys to our well-being on Healthy Brain, Happy Body.